Alright, good morning Emmanuel. God with us church. I want to kind of keep that before your, your uh, face uh, here every time we gather, um, that we gather as a people whose confidence is that God is going with us wherever we go. And, and so uh, you've already heard uh, great things happening here at the church and the school. Uh, we had a, an awesome um, $10,000 donation uh, that's going to be matched and so we just uh, we thank God for that. And uh, so God is at work, and uh, that's our confidence. And so this morning, uh, we are in the book of Philippians, and so we'll go ahead. Kids, I, so I'm getting used to things, like it has been uh, a week of getting used to things. And so kids, you guys can be dismissed downstairs to E-Kids. So those of you that remain, Philippians chapter number one this morning, Philippians one, we're going to continue our series entitled Tenacious Together as we uh, look at this uh, ragtag church at Philippi. Um, What we had labeled last week is the messy miracle of Macedonia. And uh, what an awesome story it was to see this church come together. Uh, When you look at just its composition, it's really unique in its makeup. Uh, We have Lydia, who was a small business, uh, was a a small business woman. Uh, So she was kind of an entrepreneur. She was well known in the community. Uh, We also had a trafficked slave girl who was demon possessed, who uh, the demon was exercised. And of course, remember, they were making money off of her and and her soothsaying. And so we had uh, that was part of that church, that messy miracle in Macedonia. And then we had a blue collar guy, a Philippian jailer who was working night shift, who thought it was just going to be another night at the jail, um, only to experience God and and to experience him in a mighty way through the worship of Paul and, uh, and Silas there as they were in prison. And so we have this group in in Macedonia and Philippi that comes together miraculously. And we said that it's God who builds the organism. I mean, anybody anybody can build an organization. We could have a church that's an organization, but God builds the organism of the church. He's what makes it come alive. And supernaturally, he had cobbled these unique, diverse folks together to make up this messy miracle in Macedonia. Not only were they together, but the unique thing that we find in the book of Philippians is they were together in joy and unity and humility. And so we began to ask the question of our own messy miracle here in Clarksburg, right? God has supernaturally brought us together, and many of us come from different walks of life, and we have uh, different likes and interests, and it's really a unique story about how God has brought us together and how we have been through trial after trial, and yet we still remain here. And so in our own messy miracle here in Clarksburg, we began to ask the question last week, how do we keep being together? How do we keep being tenacious together in joy and unity and humility? Ephesians 4.3 says that we ought to strive earnestly to keep the unity that we have. And so we asked, how in the world do we go about that? And in the book of Philippians in chapter number one, hopefully you're there in verse number one, we began to look at some misconceptions of joy. Things that our culture would look at and say are joy squelchers. That surely no joy is to be found in these things. And so if you're in Philippians, we'll go ahead and read it just to refresh it in our memory. And then we'll do a quick review. And then we'll get into some new stuff today. So before we do any of that, let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for your word and just the work that it's done in my own heart this week. I'm I'm so grateful, Lord, to have the opportunity to study it 
to learn from it, to apply it. And God, I just pray this morning that whatever is said would just be a reflection of the work that you've already done in my own heart. God, I thank you for this church that you have brought together. I thank you for the life that it has. God, I pray that forever and always in in the forefront of our mind, we would remember that it's your work, that it's not ours, that you promise you will build the church. It's not something that can be manufactured. It's not something that can be chartered. It's not something that we have through through documents. God, it's something that comes from you. And God, we just pray that we would uh, continue to walk in that hope and assurance that we have, that we continue to commend to you at every point this thing. God, I commend my message to you this morning. I pray that your word would not return void, but it would do its work. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians chapter number one, it's up here on the screen. It begins with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all with, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So we looked at Philippians last week. We looked only at the first and second verse. We didn't make it very far, and we may not even make it much further today. But as we uh, look at these verses, we said the book of Philippians is just chocked full of glory. Um, Of all the books in the Bible, the book of Philippians has a real emphasis on Christ and his preeminence. And we're going to see that in chapter number two. But what it also has an emphasis on is joy and how we might be tenacious together and how we might be uh, continuing in that joy and unity and humility And we said there are a couple of things last week that we would call misconceptions of joy. We saw them in the beginning when it says Paul and Timothy. We see that Paul had a habit of sharing credit, of elevating kind of junior pastors, junior leaders uh, up with him. We said this is not the letter of Paul and Timothy to the Philippians, right? You can read that right here in in the title of the book. It says the Apostle Paul, the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And yet Paul thought it was absolutely necessary to share credit with those who are around him. Um, F.F. Bruce uh, made an interesting observation that I just learned this week. He said, if you totaled up the number of people who were in Paul's immediate circle, you would have a number somewhere around 58. 58 unique people that Paul was directly mentoring, encouraging, raising up. And it's a sad fact that there are so many churches who are on the verge of extinction who will probably die within a generation because they're not doing the work of Paul in elevating and and leading together with other men and encouraging, inspiring other leaders to lead. 
And so we said that the culture that we live in says that if you really want to be joyful, if you want to be happy, you need to stand out and be the leader, right? Uh, my boss always says, if you're not the lead dog, the view never changes. <laughs> and so that's kind of the misconception that we have about joy, is that to, to do it together, to share credit is a joy kill, that it's a joy squelcher. But that's not what we see in the book of Philippians. Last week we said that not only do we, does our culture view sharing credit as a total downer, but we also view servitude in the same way. We said that nobody would be happy being a servant. That again, we want to be served, not to serve. And we saw from Philippians that the Apostle Paul and both Paul and Timothy identified themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. And that they were bond slaves to him, that their life was hidden in him, that whatever Jesus expected of them is their desire, their pleasure to do, that they were not coerced into this relationship, they were not forced into slavery, but they willingly bonded themselves to Jesus because to be a slave of Jesus is far more freedom and far more joy than to be a slave of the world. And so we also saw that not only does our culture think that being a servant is a downer, but to be lost, to have our identity found in, in a corporate body and not individually, to be part of what I call the syndicate is a total buzzkill too. They would say again that we, we want to stand out from the crowd. And so you, we see this all the time with teenagers, right? Every teenager wants the freedom of self-expression to make a statement, to be different. And it's kind of ironic that in being different and getting tattoos or piercings or whatever they do in order to kind of stand out from the crowd that they actually ultimately become much like the crowd. And so they become like the world. And so there's much joy to be found in being part of this body, right? It is enough just to be part of Emmanuel Baptist Church. When I was uh, candidating, I, you'll recall that I had talked to my son, Cohen, and I said, you know, what What if daddy's not the pastor? What do we do? Are you okay with going back to Emmanuel? And he said, absolutely. We don't ever leave our friends. I mean, that always stuck with me. It says, no matter what happened, pastor, deacon, church member, I'm happy to be here and to be part of this body. There is joy to be found together with the body of Christ. But then something else that's interesting that we looked at last week is that not only is being a servant not a joy squelcher, and not only is being part of the body not a joy squelcher, but having structure is not necessarily a joy squelcher either, right? And we said, you know, wait, Pastor Josh, you said you're going to be light on the trellis and heavy on people, and I am, and that's totally my intention. But we see from Scripture that you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and it doesn't mean that structure in and of itself is evil. One of the most amazing things about the church at Philippi is how quickly it evolved in its structure. I mean, we're talking a 10-year period that Paul planted this thing, and it was a ragtag group of people meeting down by the river, who then became a group of people meeting in a house, the house of Lydia, to then a full-blown church with overseers and deacons. And what a miraculous transformation. We said structure is not always a buzzkill. Structure is not always a joy squelcher. It's the fruit of the structure. It's If structure is an end of in and of itself, that's when it becomes a buzzkill. That's when it's a downer. But God bless structures that bring about the good things of God that bring about joy and humility and peace. And so we concluded last week, and this was really the emphasis that I wanted everybody to get, is you'll notice in all of these things that self is the real joy squelcher. 
that when we are totally fixated on me and elevating me, that's when our church begins to decline. That's when our institution goes the way of most institutions and becomes unrecognizable. That's when mission creep sets in. And that's when we become what we said we don't ever want to become, a life-draining burden and not the respite that God would have us to be. And so how do we keep the unity? How do we keep this messy miracle in Clarksburg thriving, tenacious together, in joy, unity, and humility? We do it by killing self. We do it by finding every opportunity to uproot it from our life, corporately, individually. And so we do that by sharing credit, by serving Jesus, by being part of the whole, by following good structures that bring good fruit. But self is the real joy squelcher. In fact, self is the very antithesis of the gospel, right? The gospel is that we ought to make much of Jesus, that our life is to be found in Jesus, that it's Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that merits anything on our behalf, that it's nothing that we do. In fact, any fruit, anything that you have in the church, if it elevates self and doesn't elevate Jesus, then it's to be anathema, as Paul says in the book of Galatians, that it's cursed because it does not have the heart of Christ. In fact, later in Philippians chapter number 2, we're going to see this heart of Christ that who, even though being made in the form and the very likeness of God, thought it robbery to be considered equal with God, but humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. It's the same heart in the Gospels we see in Mark chapter number 10 and verse number 45 that Jesus, the Creator, Jesus, the preeminent one, Jesus would come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so self, when we are self-seeking and we were all about our own needs and our own interests, we are actually the antithesis of the Gospel. That we ought to empty ourselves, we ought to kill ourselves in order to let Jesus raise us up that our life might be found in him. And that is the mind of Christ. And we said that if you pursue a life of self-gratification, of self-exaltation, then the end looks like this. You will be alone and you will be condemned. And that, friends, is the opposite of joy. That is where our organization becomes that life-draining burden that we want to avoid. And so this morning, we're going to finish the greeting (laughs) because it is packed with so many good things that I want you to see. We have already said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. But here's where our focus is today. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. This is such a good word. It's a word that's familiar in the New Testament. It's kind of that customary greeting of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the Apostle Paul's writing style follows kind of the customary writing style of the day. If you were to pen a letter, there was just a certain structure that you would follow in the ancient world. And it's called this. It's a prescript followed by thanksgiving. So a prescript is this. Prescript is basically just the, the senders to the addressees. So you could say it like this, A to B greeting. And so it might be, uh, I don't know, me to Mike Davis, let's go Mountaineers. 
That might be our our greeting today. Very simple, the sender to the addressee, and then just a cordial greeting. And so this was commonplace not just in the church, uh, but it was commonplace in all of the the world at that time. And so in fact, if you were going to write a letter and you were Greek, you might say, from A to B, joy. If you were Latin, you would say something different. You would say, from A to B, good health. That was their emphasis. So it's basically the, the prescript is just the address, sender to the addressees, A to B, and then followed by a short greeting. And so it's interesting to note in the book of Philippians, this is actually the shortest of the prescripts of any of the Pauline epistles, which I think is really cool. Save for two, First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians are shorter, and they're shorter because the only thing that's mentioned there is just the sender and the addressee bare bones. Nothing about them, no adjectives, no colorful language. It's just Paul and Sylvanius and so just just their names. But aside from that, Philippians has the shortest prescript of any of the New Testament epistles. Sure wasn't the case in Galatians when you guys studied that, right, with Reese? Not at all the case in Galatians. Galatians is Paul, an apostle, and here's my authority, and this is why you ought to listen to me because you're wrong. And uh, so there was a lot of things that sometimes in that prescript, it hints at what the content of the book will be. Philippians is so short because the apostle Paul didn't need an introduction to that church. So his, his plea was on the basis of his relationship. It wasn't on the basis of his apostolic authority. It's very relational letter, and that's why it's so short in its prescript. The prescript is interesting because it says grace to you and peace. This is the greeting that Paul in, employs. He says grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't, the greeting's not joy, the greeting's not good health. It's actually a very traditional Jewish greeting that he employs. So the Jews would wish peace or shalom. And so peace is actually, if you think of it this way, I've read a couple different definitions, it's all the good. It's just all the good, right? It's like going to a buffet of good and it's just like putting everything on your plate. All the good. And so that's peace, all the good of God, all the good blessings. I want all of that for you, for the church. But I love Paul. That's not good enough for Paul. Paul's a very logical thinker. So yeah, okay, I want all the good for you, but where does all the good come from? And so Paul found it absolutely necessary to couple peace together with grace because grace is the source of all the good. And so he says, not just grace to you, or not just peace from God, but grace to you and peace from God. So you can think of it as like a greeting that's kind of amped up on an energy drink, right? It's both. It's, it's a double amplification, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that. And that's what we want to spend a little bit of time today looking at, is this idea of grace and peace. We already said that peace is all the good and grace is the source. But I wonder this morning... The question that begs to be asked is, are we at grace and peace? Do you feel that? I mean, that's Paul's desire. That's his greeting. That's his wish for our church. But do you see grace and peace in your life, in your marriage, with your relationship to your kids, in the church, at your place of work? I mean, would you say that I, that is it? I, I have all the good, all the good blessings are being bestowed on me and all of it is coming from grace. Is that your heart this morning? You know, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we might say that that's not what I feel this morning. 
There have been plenty of times in my own life, even this morning, where I didn't feel a lot of grace and peace. I felt a lot of conflict and turmoil and consternation. One of my favorite songs at Christmas time is I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Maybe you're familiar with the Casting Crowns totally knocked that song out of the park. And I can listen to it on repeat. It was written actually as a poem by Henry Wadesworth Longfellow. And he wrote the song um, of, of one who is despairing at the notion of peace on earth. That is in a state of just being distraught over the conflict that is ever present in his life. You see, Longfellow's life was in shambles when he wrote the song. His spouse of 18 years was fatally burned in a fire. Conflict ravaged his relationship with his oldest son, who enlisted as a Union soldier against his father's wishes, and was soon enough severely wounded and left permanently disabled. And so Longfellow says this, he says, I hear the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet their words repeat of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. But... My wife hates it when I say the word but, right? I usually say something good followed by but. And she's always waiting for it. And she says, but, and, you know, come on, give it to me. Bring the bad. Well, here it is. He says, but then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And maybe that's your life this morning. The Apostle Paul is telling you, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're saying, I hear that. But like Tim Keller, I heard say one time in a sermon, that's on audio, but the trials of my life, those are in video. Not just video, they're 3D. Like I am so well acquainted with the conflict and strife of my life. That this sounds like a, just a faint echo, goodwill, peace, grace. Those things are true, and I know them from Scripture, but they're being drowned out by the troubles of my life. You might say the conflict inside eats me up. And so no, Pastor Josh, there is no grace. There is no peace. There's only conflict and strife. And to that I would say, welcome right? Isn't that the posture our church ought to have? Welcome. You're safe here. This is a whole place filled with people who are at conflict in their life. This is a place that where in every turn we face difficulty and struggles and trials. That's why last week we read that famous inscription at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia where the great pastors Barnhouse and Boyce and Riken preached and it says this, the inscription says, inscription says, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome. I think so many times we think that our great need is the enemy of grace and peace. How many times have you been confronted with your need for grace and peace and you felt ashamed by it? 
I know that there were times in my marriage and in my relationship with my kids where there was conflict and it was framed in conflict and I felt ashamed and embarrassed and alone and isolated. And that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not the things that will, the, the, the failure and the sin and the need will never threaten this church. But pride will. Self-sufficiency will. Self's black hands will get itself around the throat of our church and snuff it out if we allow it to. And so this morning you might be here and you might say, I am full of sin, I am full of failure, I am full of weakness. And I would say to you, that's exactly the type of life that God delights to work in. Because one of the things that we see time and time again in Scripture is that God will never turn away from the cry of a man, woman, boy, or girl who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That never does he shy away. Never is the hand of the Lord shortened that he is not able to save someone in that position. We always look back in the New Testament at the publican and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee looks at the publican and says, God, thank God I'm not like that person. They're evil and wretched and wicked and full of sin and failure. And it was the publican who could not even look to heaven, but said, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. And he left that day justified. You know what, guys? Having sin and having failure and having weakness will never threaten this church. It didn't threaten the church at Philippi. It brought life into it because need and expectancy are what we come. It's the only thing we bring to the gospel is that I have a tremendous need, that I need to be reconciled with Jesus, that I am accursed. I have been cut off, separated from him because of my sin. And we come in expectancy or what we would call his faith, that the Lord's hand would not be shortened, that we can come with our doubts and our fears and our weakness and our conflict and we can bring it to the cross and that God is able and God will overcome that and he will, through Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, reconcile us to himself. That is the tremendous hope we have. And that's why every single morning and every single time we gather together, the attitude of our church ought to become everybody who is needy and expect God to meet you in this place. Expect grace and peace. But there's something else we want to look at. From whom? So we're going to continue the pattern of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to think logically here. Okay, so I want peace. I want all the good. I want all of it. From God. And I know that it comes through grace. That's the source. But where does grace come from? That's an important question. That's a question the church has wrestled with way more than it ought to have. Where does grace come from? Is it something I merit? Is it something I earn? Is it something I get by going to church? Is it something I get by being a leader in the church? Is it from reading the Bible? Is it from praying? How do I get grace? So I want all the good. I know it comes from grace, but where does the grace come from? And this is the kicker. And I hope you love this as much as I love it. Because this week, it was really enlightening to study this out. It comes from who? From, from God. The Jews would agree. From God. That's where it comes. God is the source 
of grace. And grace is the source of peace. But there's a little word there, and. You see, Paul joined Paul and Timothy together in number one, right? We looked at that. Paul and Timothy joined together, and now he's going to do it again. He's going to join someone else together. But this one has crazy ramifications. So who's he joined with God? Jesus. And the Jews said, oh, no, you didn't. Right? That was exactly what got Jesus in trouble with the Jews. So you'll recall the Jews were telling Jesus at one point, they said, we're not going to stone you for the good that you do. It's not the miracles and all of the good things that are happening that we're going to stone you for. No, we're going to stone you because you being a mere man make yourself out to be God. And that's blasphemy. And that's high, high cosmic treason. And what's the Apostle Paul do? Lest you forget, he joins God and Jesus together because that's where they belong. And in doing so, he emphasizes such an important thing that Jesus is the divine, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity. And he's actually preempting what he's going to talk about in chapter number two. He's giving you a little bit of a taste of it because he's going to launch into a tirade on it in chapter number two, a chapter that we call the preeminence of Christ. And he's going to talk about how exactly how that Jesus is in the exact form of God. But he thought it robbery to be considered equal with God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he exalted himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Paul is doing here when he says, and Jesus. He is exalting Jesus to the place of God because he is God. The book of John is chocked full with references that prove the divinity of Jesus. So in John, we find out that he is the word made flesh, that in the beginning was the word. We find out in the book of John that he is the great I am. The whole book of John is about making the case that Jesus is God. And so this morning, we have to wrestle with this because our grace and our peace are totally dependent on us, understanding and realizing that Jesus is Lord. You know, so many times I think that we forget. We begin to think that Jesus is just a great teacher. We think that Jesus is just a phenomenal prophet. And we forget this amazing truth that Jesus is God. That peace is what we want. It comes from grace and it's found in Jesus. I like it. I mean, I think it kind of, I mean, it's a good background. To, I mean, if I was going to pick some instrumental music, that, that would be it. I mean, the rocks will sing his praises, so will the pigeons. 
you won't do it, they will. They moved in. They live here now. Welcome to the messy miracle of Clarksburg. So I want to finish with this. Just, just two thoughts. I wanted to go short today. I hope that I'll be able to accomplish that. Just two, two quick thoughts. Jesus is not just your teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is Lord. And as Lord, he is the source of your divine blessing. So when you look at that prayer card, we said one of the things that we want to do at the church is to exalt him in every way, shape, and form that we can. That that ought to be the heart of our church, is to exalt Jesus, to elevate him, just as the Apostle Paul did, to put him at the forefront of everybody's mind. Because he is the source of blessing and joy. The Apostle Paul says, or not the Apostle Paul, but the book of John in 1232, Jesus says, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He has what we need because we all have need. His offer is grace and peace through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. That's been the announcement since the very beginning of time, right? You, have you guys seen cutesy little birth announcements? Everybody's doing it. Mandy and I got on that train, and, and now everybody has a, a more creative one. They're always trying to one-up each other. If you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter number 2. I want you to turn there real quick. Luke 2. I want you to see that the, the whole birth announcement thing actually kind of began with God. So it's not original to you. Um, it's not original to Pinterest. Uh, Jesus actually had his very own birth announcement, and I love it. In Luke chapter number 2, verse number 8, we find that Jesus' birth announcement was way better than yours or mine or our kids because it actually involved real-life angels who brought the birth announcement to shepherds keeping their watch over the field by night. And so it says in verse number 9 of chapter 2, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. I mean, try to put yourself in that position. Again, you're on night shift. This, if anything, if you learn anything today, don't work night shift, right? <laughs> Philippian jailer, shepherds in the field at night. Just day, stick to day shift. Uh, everything bad happens on night shift. But this was actually something really good that happened. So they're terrified. This whole army of angels comes and descends on them, and they are trembling with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, what? The Lord. The Lord. You know, one of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, says this of this passage. He says, never in history has an invading army stormed the beaches of their adversary and said, we come to bring you good news and peace and joy. What an awesome thing. I mean, the shepherds are terrified as they rightly should be. Heaven has descended down on earth, and obviously it's to rain judgment on earth, right? Because we are the adversaries of God. We're at enmity. We've sinned against him. We've committed cosmic treason. And here they show up, and we know that they're about to rain heaven down on us. <laughs> the opposite of what we would think. And then what do they do? They say, fear not. We bring you good news because God is going to rain down his wrath on his son Jesus on your behalf. 
and his son Jesus, who's never going to do a wrong thing, who's going to live the life that you and I could not ever live, who is going to fulfill every jot and every tittle of the law and be righteous in every single way, is going to exchange his righteousness on your behalf. And all of that need and all of that sin and all of that failure and weakness is going to be bound up and met in Jesus. And he's going to crush it. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. That's no longer a concern of yours. And that same word is what made the church at Philippi so life-giving. And it's the word that can make this messy miracle in Clarksburg the most welcoming place ever. Because we don't have to contend and strive and we don't have to be better than the person sitting next to us because Jesus is Lord and Jesus is overall and Jesus is bestowed upon us if we come in expectancy and faith believing that he is who he said he was, that he is God and that he is God made flesh, that he is God put to death on the cross for your sins and my sins and raised to, to, from the dead and is at the right hand of God making intercession on our behalf. If you believe that this morning, the Apostle Paul says, grace to you, because it's all in Jesus. There's a reason that the book of Philippians is so heavy on its Christology. There's a reason that Jesus' name is mentioned more there than any other book in the New Testament, other than the Gospels. Because it was all about Jesus to the church at Philippi. They saw that from the beginning. You know, not only do we want to be a church that exalts, we want to be a church that evangelizes. You'll remember in Acts chapter number 20, the Apostle Paul gave that talk to the Ephesian elders, and we outlined kind of our vision for the church, that we wanted to be lifting up, exalting the name of Jesus. We said that we also wanted to be evangelizing. We wanted to tell people about Jesus. We wanted to see uh, the Father seeks true worshipers, and so we want to be about his business, finding people to worship and exalt and lift up Jesus. And I want you to see today that if we are to be those people, there is no greater truth that we must grasp than Jesus is Lord. I've heard so many times, and I've been there myself, you come upon somebody that is full of conflict, and, and maybe it's with their marriage. Their marriage is on the rocks. Things aren't going very well. Maybe it's in their parenting. Maybe they're button heads at work. You know, we come across all kinds of different situations, right, in counseling. And sometimes we feel like, I don't have a word for those folks. I don't know what the the answer to a perfect marriage is. I don't know what to say to somebody who maybe, maybe it's uh, somebody that um, is in the school who, you know, I I thought of this situation last night. There's so many children in our community who are without moms and dads, who are in the foster system, whose mom and dad are tweaking at home, who could give a rip about them. And, and just it breaks my heart to think of that. And you say, How, Pastor Josh, there's no way. What would I ever say to somebody in that position? What do I tell somebody who's in such turmoil and conflict, whose life is devoid of grace and peace? And you know, we think, we overthink it. We say, Jesus is Lord. Now, I don't mean that in a trivial sense. I don't mean that you just say Jesus is Lord and you kind of wish that over people and all their life gets better and they live their best life now. That's not what it means. The Philippian church was not necessarily, according to man's standards, living their best life right now. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Philippi while sitting in jail. Not exactly what you would want to market your book with. 
but he knew Jesus as Lord. So when I say that when you come across somebody, when you want to evangelize and you come across somebody whose life is devoid of grace and peace, that knowing Jesus as Lord and proclaiming Jesus as Lord, it's not as though it's a trivial thing that makes their life okay. I mean it in a sense of like Genesis 50-30. Are you guys familiar with Joseph? You guys know the story of Joseph? I love the story of Joseph. So Joseph's life was not exactly good, was it? His brothers are scared. I mean, turmoil in his family from the start. Um, his dad plays favorites, right? His dad loves him, doesn't love his brother so much. That gets him into all kinds of trouble because his brothers begin to hate him. They throw him in a pit, bad enough. They don't leave him there. He's sold into slavery. He lives the life of a slave, again, doing nothing wrong, totally innocent, persecuted in every way. Not only does he live a life as a slave, he comes out of slavery, works himself up, becomes the head of Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife makes an accusation against him that was unfounded, not true. He endures trial after trial in his workplace. He's lied about. Potiphar believes the lie. Potiphar throws him into jail. He meets friends, engages his fellow prisoners, builds relationships. They promise him that when they get out, they're going to get him out. They betray him. Finally, he goes to Egypt, he works himself up, and he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And finally, the story climaxes with him face-to-face with his brothers, full of conflict. Same conflict that's been there from the beginning. And what's he say? He says, Jesus is Lord. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's the confidence that we have as a church is that whatever you're going through today, whatever your marriage situation's been, you know what, there have been times where I'm sure Mandy thought, you know what, God, you did not mean this for good. That guy is a buffoon. Like, he brings me conflict and stress and turmoil. And you know what, there have been so many times in our relationship, and maybe you're there now, where we've had to say, what God has brought together, don't let man put us under. What God has done, don't let, don't let anybody take that away. And it gives us a confidence that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and we're able to say Jesus is Lord in our marriage. And I'm able to say Jesus is Lord to my kids. And I'm able to say in the church, Jesus is Lord. One of my favorite, favorite quotes that I came across as I was preparing for this morning's message it was by John Dixon. I got them all kinds of They love Jesus as Lord. Like they are worked up over that. They should be. We're getting a new ceiling, by the way. So that's, praise God for that. That's, on, that's in the works. Um, then the pigeons will probably meet Jesus. And their joy will be full. So here's the kicker. This is where I want to end this morning. John Dixon said this about Jesus as Lord. He says, The antidote to all Christian embarrassment is a renewed vision of the absolute lordship of Jesus. That he is divine and he owns every room. Isn't that beautiful? No matter where you find yourself this week, 
no matter how God stretches you, no matter how you're tried, God is in every room. He owns every room. He is Lord over every room. And so, you know, I don't know, um, Amanda's up in the sound booth. I, I'm not really good at writing slogans, but if we had a slogan for the, the Christian school, man, I think he owns every room would be an awesome one. Every single classroom is his. When we were, as a school board, going to, through a, a book on how to be a better school board, this was a couple years ago, um, there was a quote in there that, that I thought was so good, and it really embodies why I send my kids to Emmanuel Christian School. And it's because I want them to know that everything revolves around Jesus. I want them to know that there are no secular subjects. All truth is God's truth. And I want them to know above all that their school and every subject and every class proclaims the lordship of Christ in every area of life. That ought to be the unifying battle cry of every subject, every class, Everywhere you go, the work cooler at work, it ought to be in your homes, it ought to be everywhere that Jesus is Lord. And so I would say this to you this morning, you know, I've had the opportunity the past couple weeks to come to the school and and I want to talk a little bit about the school because we're going to see next week the Thanksgiving part. So you have a prescript and you have a Thanksgiving and, and the thing that Paul was most thankful at the church at Philippi about was their partnership in the gospel. And so it's a, it's a tremendous thing for me to be able to be a pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and to also have a Christian school that's a partner together. Because I, as I said, the reason I send my kids to a Christian school and the reason probably some of you homeschool or, or whatever, wherever you go, we, we do it proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And this week, I had the opportunity to talk to one of our teachers uh, before I went to work in the morning. I was here and uh, she was telling me about the week that she'd had. And man, was it a doozy. I mean, there was, there was turmoil, there was conflict between students, things were really bad. And she told me this, she said, but I knew God is up to something. Like, it's really bad, and I'm really struggling going to work, and things are just terrible, but I just knew, like, God, God, there's a reason. And she was just, Jesus is Lord in my classroom. And she said, you'll never believe this, Pastor Josh. She said, I was sharing the gospel this week, and two of my students, who I know are from unchurched families, unsaved homes, proclaim Jesus as Lord. And you know, Ephesians says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this evil world. And that conflict is evil, but Jesus has overcome it. Jesus is able to offer grace and peace. And I celebrate that partnership that we have with the school. I was able to spend some time there. It's been such a good week able to pass out some valentines to the kids and introduce myself. We had a book fair that absolutely rocked. I don't know if you guys saw that. Um, it was amazing if you walked in. The, just the kids were loved on and, and cared for and, and shepherded. And I love that we send our kids to a school where we can partner together with them and we can say with one voice, Jesus is Lord. And you know what? I think that's why God is blessing us right now. Because if you want to have a church, like the church at Philippi, and you want to be tenacious together, then you've got to stop exalting yourself. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And so that's what's happening. Part of it, I think, is we're so tired and there's been so many battles, we don't have time to fight with each other. 
But there will be a day when things calm down and you'll be tempted to look across the aisle and you'll be tempted to not be welcoming. You'll be tempted to gossip about somebody's conflict. You'll be tempted to tear down rather than build up. You'll be tempted to elevate yourself, that you're better, you're superior, you'll want to stand out. And you got to remember that in all of those opportunities, when we exalt ourselves, there is nothing left for us but judgment, condemnation, to be alone. The great writer of Hebrews said this, that for those who reject Jesus, the source of blessing, there is nothing left for them but a fearful expectation of judgment. I don't say that as a hard word. I say that as a word that ought to give you life and joy and grace and peace. Because there's nothing that I have to do. It's already been done. What do I bring, you say, Pastor Josh? You bring need and you bring expectancy. And so I'm going to ask every head be bowed, every eye closed. Maybe you're here today. It's just a, a time to quiet our hearts just between us and the Lord. Maybe you say, Pastor Josh, there is so much conflict right now. There is so much sin, failure, weakness, shortcomings. I feel the weight of that condemnation. May I remind you this morning, and may you be encouraged by the word that you've heard, that Jesus is Lord. That whatever way you have fallen short this week, whatever sins you have committed, whatever your, your shortcomings are, they are all made whole in Jesus. May we exalt him. May we all come broken. May we be a place that is welcoming to those who are full of conflict, full of strife. May our classrooms at Emmanuel Christian School be, be just sweet, and just uh, be so fragrant with grace and peace. May we rush to proclaim Jesus as Lord in every student conflict, every teacher conflict, in every curriculum, and in every battle. May we raise the banner of Jesus. And if you're here today, and you are cut off from Jesus, all you have is condemnation. There is no way to merit grace There is no amount of going to church that's going to fix things. There's no amount of reading your Bible. What you need is not anything that you in and of yourself possess. You cannot manufacture grace. You receive it. And so I would encourage you today to look to Jesus, who we've lifted up this morning, to bring your trials and your shortcoming and your sin and your failure to him and exchange it at the cross Let him be your righteousness. God, we thank you for Emmanuel Baptist Church. I thank you that you have brought us together. And I pray that you will go before us. You will fight our battles. We commend this work to you and your grace. We thank you for your son who worked what we could not work, who did what we couldn't do. And we thank you for his death on the cross, that he took my sins and that he gave me his righteousness. God, I pray that we would be evangelists in our community, that we would go out and proclaim everywhere we can and every highway and byway, Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Guys, I want you to have a great week. I think Mike is going to lead us because he's much better at it than me. I've ruined that last week. We're going to sing the doxology.